Hey, this is Dan Quiggle with episode three of Garage to Goliath, Leaders Building Legacies podcast. Today's interview is with John Padani. John is an example of a leader who has been a game changer in major organizations. He has had to lead large numbers of people, create culture, and deliver results. So let's explore how he does it. How do you make everyone happy, if that's even possible, and run a successful organization, especially one as large, well-known as the LPGA? So imagine getting to speak around the world, meeting the most successful, positive leaders, then getting to choose from that group. That's what my show is about, learning from the best how to be your best, so that we can challenge ourselves to lead with purpose, impacting lives and communities. Hi, I'm Dan Quiggle, and welcome to the Garage to Goliath podcast, where we learn, lead, and leave a lasting legacy. Today, I want to introduce you to an all-around great guy, neighbor, family, friend, and I even get <laughs> got his daughter to go to UCLA and, and take great pleasure in watching a huge Michigan fan. John is a huge Michigan fan. Walk around in a UCLA shirt. It is sweet, John, by the way. I just want you to know that. Uh, John Padani <laughs> is the chief commercial officer of the LPGA. The LPGA has experienced a resurgence in the past six years, and John has played a huge role in that success. Tournaments have increased from 23 to 35. Purses have increased 67%. TV hours have uh, doubled, and the LPGA's fan base is up significantly. Prior to his role with the LPGA, John was with the PGA Tour for 15 years. He started as a director of business development, was quickly promoted to vice president of business development, then led brand marketing for five years, and then served as senior vice president from 2005 to 2010. And by the way, John was very involved with the FedEx Cup deal, over $2 billion in deals. That's why you want to listen to John Padani today. Uh, he started his career with Procter & Gamble, where he worked on several iconic brands, uh, Pert Plus, Oil of LA, and was brand manager of Safeguard by age 26. John Padani, a business leader, husband, father, and I'm so fortunate to call a personal friend. John, I know who you are, but for our listeners who may not know the whole story, who are you? What do you do right now? Can you describe to me and the audience the journey you took to get to where you are right now in life? Well, sure. Um, thank you for the introduction. That actually touched on you know much of what I've done from a career standpoint. Um, I don't uh, define myself just by my career uh, by any means. Um, certainly, um, husband, father, and uh, my faith in God and, and my career are all, you know, integrally linked to uh, who I am. Um, you know, right now I've been working in the golf industry for uh, 22 years. Uh, feel very fortunate that I was able to find my way into a career uh, in an industry that I have a lot of passion for, um, and been able to have success, you know, in that line of work for now 22 years. And now working for the LPGA, um, so the PGA Tour for 15 years, and the LPGA now for for seven. Um, you know, my guiding principles have really been built around uh, the values that we just talked about, which is uh, faith, family, my career, and, and my health, and trying to find a balance uh, between all those as um, as, I, as I've built my career over the years. Um, interestingly, and I, I kind of kid people, I've only worked for three companies in my 30-year career, and they all have a P and a G in them. So, <laughs> That's great. In Procter & Gamble, P&G, PGA Tour, and, and LPGA. So I guess I'm destined to uh, work for PP&G or some other company someday. <laughs> that, that That's great. I love that. Um, so, so you... You know, I love that you have family. What is your What is your big why? What motivates you even when times are tough, and, and why do you do it? What you do? Well, I think 
You know, in my case, it's uh, really just to do my best and to make a difference um, in, in what I do. Um, I feel like, you know, God's put us on this earth to, uh, with certain abilities and, and to, to uh, try to get the most out of my abilities that I can. And uh, that's motivated me when I wasn't necessarily, you know, uh, focused on the result, um, but just and even in, in times of stressful or pressure situations to try to not worry about the outcome, but to to focus on the process and just doing the best that I could. And, and um, yeah, that's probably been what's guided me more than anything else. Yeah. It, you know, it's funny because I, I, I know that you enjoy life and you, you do have a great family. You know, you, you talked about golf and you've been in golf for a long time. Tell the story because I think it's interesting how you love to play golf and you're an incredible golfer, but you know, sometimes when you're in a sport, you don't get to play it as often, do you? I mean, you're kind of, you're, you're busy working, aren't you? Yeah, you are, you know, and um, that probably comes down to choices that you make. Uh, and in mine, there certainly are plenty of opportunities to to play, but I've, you know, a lot of times on weekends, uh, I'm following my own kids' sports and I uh, would rather be, you know, watching their softball game or their volleyball game than, than being out on the golf course myself. Um, and even business-wise, you know, I've had plenty of opportunities and I do take advantage of some of those to spend time with clients. But oftentimes it's a decision of, well, do I really, can I, can I afford to be out there uh, playing when this needs to be done or I've got this important meeting to attend to? Um, but in our industry, um, you know, playing golf with clients is a very valuable tool and it's a great way to build relationships and partnerships. So I do try to take advantage of the opportunities, you know, business wise where I can. It's probably more on the personal side that I haven't played as much, you know, during my child rearing years, you know, but I can see a day a couple of years down the road. We're about to be empty nesters here in about 18 months. <laughs> so I'm expecting to play a lot more golf in the, uh, after a couple of years. Well, you, and and I'm sure you will take advantage of that time because I, I do I, I do ha- and I always have appreciated the time that you spend with your family and I love that you bring up that as a priority. One of the greatest coaches of all time, John Wooden, and you know I'm going to UCLA here, uh, has the Wooden Pyramid. And when you walk into the Wooden Center at UCLA, it's 20 feet tall, all in gold. Has blocks like you know that say loyalty, confidence, intentness, friendship, poise, competitive greatness. What values would you put on your pyramid, the John Padani pyramid? Give me a few of your personal values that you found that have served you well in life. Sure. Yeah. And um, I'm a big fan of John Wooden. Always have been, even before my own daughter went to UCLA. Um, I just felt like he's lived his life in the right way um, and, and been a leader of men, you know, not just a basketball coach. Um, so his pyramid of success and a lot of his quotes, you know, have been things that I've lived by. Um, I would say for me, you know, similar to some of his things, but uh, in- integrity comes to mind, um, you know, with your family, with your with your colleagues. Can they trust you? Um, you know, do you do the right thing uh, when people are looking or yeah, even or when they're not? Um, you know, hard work. Uh, is another one that comes to mind. Um, just always, as we were talking about earlier, always trying to do your best and um, not leaving anything on the table. Uh, and then, lastly, I would say, you know, it's a simple one, but the the golden rule, you know, do unto others as you would have done unto you, um, is a pretty simple rule to live by in in life that uh, serves you pretty well. Yes, love all three of those. Um, most often. I think our thoughts are kind of a precursor to how we act and, and you know, what we become as people. So what do you spend your time thinking about? 
Well, I'm I'm a big planner. Um, yeah, I still carry around a, an old day timer, a Franklin planner, which I've done for school. probably 20 years. I, I'm old school. I like writing things down. I like having lists and crossing them off. Um, you know, I haven't gone full electronic on that yet. Um, and it just helps keep me organized and focused on, you know, not only what I have to get done today, but what I've got to get done next week and next month. Um, so I'd say from a, you know, from a practical standpoint, uh, I'm a big planner. I'd say from, from more of a philosophical standpoint, um, you know, certainly try to look at life in a positive, optimistic way. Um, and, um, you know, I'm not a, I don't like giving excuses. I don't, I like focusing on results, um, and finding ways to, to overcome obstacles to get there and not, uh, not letting things get in your way and not letting, you know, life beat you down because we, we all are face challenges. We're all going to continue to face challenges. Life is, you know, I've certainly learned it has a lot of ups and downs. Um, and it's, you know, you, you kind of show your true, character and strength in, in uh, times of challenge, you know, rather than when times are good. Well, I, I would agree with you on that, but you're not going to, I'm not going to let the daytimer thing go by quickly. Uh, so I, tell me about that. Do you, do you make a top 10 list? I mean, do you have like a personal list and a business list? I mean, how, how do you accomplish the things? I know you have a million things going on. So how do you accomplish the things? Like, what does that list look like? Yeah, I think um, it's it's a daily daytimer, um, and uh, you know, top of the page I have my business to dos, and and on the bottom of the page I have my personal to dos, um, and uh, I I transfer that over um, either every night um, or first thing in the morning, um, you know, on a day by day basis, and. Uh, I keep 30 days at a time, and then there's a monthly planner at the beginning. Um, so I'm writing things, you know, four or five days out, or when this is this is due, you know, next week or two weeks later, I'll write down a week ahead of time, start working on this presentation or start working on this speech, you know, those kinds of things. And, and uh, I try to cross off as many as I can, you know, during the day, and I try to get uh, – I've, I've learned over time that I'm a morning person, and uh, I do my best – thinking and work in the morning. So I usually try not to schedule as many meetings first thing. And I try to get the toughest things of my day out of the way earlier. Um, cause I just find if they, if I don't, they, uh, they either hang over me throughout the day because I'm thinking about, shoot, I still need to get that done or other things that are less important get in the way and I don't end up getting it done. So I do try to knock out the, the heavier tasks earlier in the day if I can. And and I think that's good because it lets you prioritize, but it also, you know, gives you a little vision of what's important. And, and I guess if it drops to the bottom of the list, then maybe it didn't need to get done, but other things are, are priorities. So I love, I love, I hope, I hope you don't mind me asking more, more about that, but I love that you shared that. You, you started out at Procter & Gamble. And what did you learn there that you think helped make you successful in your later career? Because I know they have a great management training program. Yeah, they do. I think, um, you know, there are probably three things that come to mind that really stand out from my experience there. One was just a, a fantastic grounding of business fundamentals. Um, you know, whether that's just, uh, writing and communicating and leadership and, uh, technical skills like, um, developing and evaluating advertising and sales training and 
things of that nature. Um, and that kind of leads into the second thing. Their training uh, was outstanding. Um, it was, you know, scheduled over the course of your career, not not just an initial two-week training program, but there were they had laid out, you know, over the first 10 to 15 years of your career, uh, what kinds of things you're going to go through, uh, what kind of training programs um, to ultimately be a, a top leader at the company, uh, and, and ended up terming at P&G College. Um, and we can talk more about that. But the third thing is um, just being around a lot of smart, talented people um, at the time. And I, I think even today, P&G was one of the most respected uh, companies in the world and, and was able to attract top talent from top schools. And just being in that uh, competitive environment and being around smart, motivated, talent, talented people um, helps you raise your game, you know, because you've got to got to compete <laughs> with that quality of person uh, to be able to succeed. Yeah, if you, if you are only as good as the people you surround yourself with, you probably feel, feel pretty great there because you've got great people around you on a regular basis, and they probably recruited the best of the best. So to be in, in that category. So tell me, t- actually, I'm, I'm going to ask, tell me more about the P&G College. I mean, is that, is that a real college? I mean, is that like a training part of, of the company? Yeah, it is. Um, so the the great thing about it was that uh, a lot of the classes were actually taught by P&G executives and not just uh, you know, not outside training firms. So you would have a vice president division or you know, CEO of the company or you know different uh, executives from throughout the company who would uh, come in and and give classes on leadership or. Um, advertising excellence or uh, effective promotions or, you know, whatever the case may be. Um, so that was one thing. And then the second thing that I think was probably probably even more important is there was considerable hands-on experience um, in the actual environment of, of um, what they were training you on. So, for example, um, as part of my training, I, uh, they wanted to expose the brand managers to the sales force and to customers like Walmart and Target and Kroger and so forth. And so you would actually go out into a sales district um, for three months and uh, be a salesperson and be part of the sales team and see how they interact with customers, see how the customers treat sales reps and, and get a real feel for um, you know how, what's important to the customer. Uh, a second thing they did is you would go to an advertising agency for a month, and uh, you would have you would have to you know sit in a chair with a copy strategy and and uh, just like an advertising creative would and and uh, write commercials and uh, know what that's like to have a clear concise strategy and and how a client would react to things and uh, going through the whole process of a shoot and editing and all that kind of stuff so you had a better appreciation for uh, what the advertising agency went through when you were trying to develop effective uh, commercials for your own brand. So there was, you know, and just a lot of case studies and things like that that they had actual results on. So in the, what they called copy college or advertising college, you would you would go through probably, I don't know, 10 to 15 different case studies where um, people would role play. Someone would be the agency, someone would be the client, you would present it, and you'd have to make a decision on which advertising you chose, um, and then they would have the actual business results of what happened. And so you could see, you know, the, the effects of your decision without having to pay the price of making that mistake, but at least get some real hands-on learning. So um, just a lot, you know, a, a lot of dedicated time to training. And 
which is, is always, I think, the challenge that people face. Oh, I don't have, you know, I can't afford to take a day to go do that or two days to, to go do that. And in this case, you know, we were taking a month or three months to go train um, in the middle of a job. And uh, they recognized how important that was. So I always remember that when, you know, when I have people who want to go to a training seminar for for a day or two or even a week, you know, that it, it it is critically important to keep developing yourself and to learn from others and, and uh, to keep bettering yourself over the course of your career. It also gives you a realistic perspective. I mean, you know, how, do, how long does something take? Uh, how difficult is it really to make that happen so that you as a leader, then once you're in charge of that, realize what people are going through? And I think, I think that is successful. So a uh, successful way to do things. So I really appreciate that. Uh, Switching gears a little bit, still today, John Padani, I have to ask you, what's your dream job in life? If money wasn't an issue, what would you be doing? You know, what would you love to do? Well, my my original dream job was to be an NFL quarterback. So, but I'm but I'm now past the point <laughs> of that being a reality. So, I've come to terms with that. Uh, you know, but honestly, beyond that. Um, I do feel very fortunate that I've been able to have a career in, in the golf industry. I, if, if, I, if money was no object, um, and I kind of already made that decision leaving a company like Procter & Gamble to get into the golf industry because I knew probably financially it wasn't going to be as viable as, uh, or as lucrative you know, as it could have been had I continued down that path. Um, but I, I do love working in the golf industry. I've got a lot of passion for it. I, I see the rest of my career probably in, you know, being in the golf industry. I'd say the only thing, you know, that I haven't achieved yet, uh, in my career that's still a goal of mine is, is to, you know, run a company, uh, to be a CEO, to be a president, to, you know, have my own company, whatever it may be. Um, so I'm still, you know, it's something I'm still striving for. I've been close and I'm, I'm in a position now where I'm involved in a lot of the leadership of the LPGA, but, um, you know, we have a commissioner and he does a great job. And so I've continued to learn from him, you know, as well. And so, so you said to run a business, what business would you want to run? Would it be golf related? Yeah, probably, you know, especially now that I have so much experience in this industry with 22 years and, and with, uh, passion for it. That would be the, you know, the most likely area. Um, so yeah, that's, you know, that's something that, uh, could be a possibility down the road. No doubt you would be successful. Uh, so what keeps you up at night? How, how do you deal with that? In, in other words, do you have any concerns for the future, for America, for your kids? Yeah, I think, you know, I think, uh, like any of us, there's certainly, um, you know, some, some macro concerns and personal concerns. I would say, you know, first and foremost is always kind of the, the health and welfare of, of my family um, and my kids. I have had a daughter, as you know, who's had some health issues, and so we've been through those dark times, and um, so I, I probably appreciate, you know, the, the, uh, the healthy days, the good days as much as anyone. Um, on a more macro basis, um, you know, certainly concerns about how divided our country is right now um, and, uh, you know, kind of the world terrorism and so forth. Um, I think those are probably always concerns, um, you know, and then from a business standpoint, um, I think it's probably, you know, just uh, the the pressure to keep it going. You know, we've had success as you outlined at the beginning of the show um, over the last five, six years. And, um, you know, it gets uh, 
on, on one hand, it, it makes it easier because you've got a positive story to tell. You've got a lot of momentum and so forth, but then the benchmarks keep getting higher and higher. You know, you've got to keep building on that and finding new ways to continue to grow the organization. Uh, what I mean by that is, for example, we went from 23 tournaments to 35. Well, we can't go from 35 to 50. Um, there's only so many weeks in the year. We've got to be able to maintain um, strong player fields at our tournaments. So maybe there's room to grow another event, but we've now got to find other ways to grow the organization. Um, so I think, you know, kind of looking at those new challenges, worrying about what's ahead, uh, where the new opportunities may be is something that uh, I think about a lot. And and I'm sure, you know, anyone listening to this show would appreciate that because we all have, you know, business issues that we deal with, family issues. I mean, so appreciate all of those. What what one piece of advice would you give your 20-year-old self and why? I, lo- I love that question because I'm just so curious. Like, what would you, if you, if you, you know, knew then what you knew now, what would you say to yourself? I would, I would probably say, you know, um, in my case, put a little less pressure on myself. Um, you know, I've always been pretty hard driving and, and I certainly think that's been part of my success, but I probably at times have too, too hard on myself or tried to be, you know, felt like I needed to be perfect. Um, and, uh, you know, maybe as we we're talking about a little bit earlier, uh, maybe too focused on outcome and not the journey, so to speak. Um, so, you know, I, I think I've gotten better about that as I've matured over time. And certainly as I've faced challenges in my life, I look back and say, why was I worrying about that? You know, but that at 20, that, that probably wasn't as top of mind, you know, as it was at uh, 35 or 40. Yeah. You're, I mean, you're hard driving. And, and the interesting part of that, I guess, is like you said, I mean, would, would things have turned out the same way if you weren't as hard driving or focused and, and how do you get that balance? So I, I, I certainly appreciate that. Now, now I want to talk about your leadership style because I know, that you know you you lead within a large org, or organization. My goal in our time together is to give our listeners some food for thought on how to expand leadership excellence in their own life. Can you explain what is your personal leadership style or philosophy? How did you develop it? Yeah, you know it's funny. I haven't necessarily given it a lot of thought or outlined you know in a little black book what my leadership style is, but it's been in thinking about it. I. You know, a few things come to mind. Um, one is um, certainly to lead by example, um, to try to to emulate the things that I would expect of, of my own people. Um, and by that, I mean things like um, being honest and straightforward, um, hardworking, um, caring, you know, about your people, um, fair, um, you know, thing, things like that. Um, I do believe um, strongly in uh, empowerment um, that you, you know, you've got to kind of lead, set a vision, um, provide guidance, be there as a resource, but, um, you know, don't uh, micromanage, don't uh, over-involve yourself in, in the process of getting there and give people a chance to, to make their own mark, to do, you know, to own and be accountable for their own responsibilities. So, um and I think ultimately, you know, to help um, people be successful, you know, to, to hopefully have them feel like uh, you care about them, you care about their welfare, their success, um, and, um, you know, achieving success together as a team. Do you find it hard not to micromanage? Yeah, you know, and it, it, it depends, I would say, Um Certainly, I'd say I have had a harder time 
managing and leading people who um, aren't as competent, you know, who aren't as strong. Um, and the underperformers, I've probably had a harder time with over my career and, and probably step in more there. Um, you know, it, it uh, that's probably the case, I, I would say, with most people. It's, it's easier to manage superstars. <laughs> Just kind <laughs> of get them going in the right direction and let them go. It's a little harder, you know, when people are struggling or don't have the right skill set for the job that they're in. So, um, you know, I think uh, that's always a balancing act of, okay, I'm, you know, for, for the sake of the business, not letting them fail too much or go down a path that you see is not the right path and when to step in and, and when to, and when to, you know, be able to make a quick decision that this is just isn't, that's not the right person in that role. And we've got to make a change and having, you know, strength to, to make that happen and not let it uh, drag on and affect the rest of the organization. I was just going to say, how hard is that? I mean, I know that it's hard for me within my organization. How hard is it for you to make that change? And do you consider yourself, I mean, have you, have you been able to make it quickly? Yeah, probably not as quickly as I should have in some cases. Um, and I would say, you know, one thing that I regret in a couple instances is, uh, I knew it was headed down that path and we're trying to rectify the situation, but uh, the other, it came more as a surprise to the other person, um, when, uh, probably could have been clearer. Um, you know, on one hand, it, it, it's a tough thing because you, you know, up until the point you, you make a decision that they're not going to be there, as we were talking earlier, you want to champion that person. You want to try to help them be successful. You want to be a positive influence and be optimistic and all those things. And if you're doing that, then that's not necessarily sending a signal that they're not performing. Um, and then you kind of reach that point where you realize they're not performing, and then it's got to be a, a tough discussion. And, and oftentimes that can be a you know, a 180 change fairly quickly. And um, so I think there's there have been a couple instances in my career where I felt like I could have done a better job of that, could have managed expectations or been a, been a little firmer earlier. So it wasn't, um, it wasn't surprising when the time came that uh, had to let somebody go. Well, it's, it's never an easy um, time. What is, what is your strategy to effectively create a vision for the people and teams you lead? Like, how did you learn to effectively create a vision for others to follow? Well, I think, you know, for me, probably the most important thing has been um, to to get a pulse of, of the organization and constituents that you're leading um, to make sure that they feel a little bit of a part of that. It's not just somebody coming in and saying, here's my vision, you've got to live with it, but it's, you know, taking some time to, to listen, to understand the current culture, to understand um, the objectives that, that people have. Now, they may, there may need to be changes, you know, especially in a turnaround situation. You, you know, if you come into an, an organization that hasn't been successful and just go by what people are saying, then just going to continue down the same path that you, they've been on. Uh, but it, it is, there, there still are things that can be learned. Um, and uh, so that when a vision or a plan strategy is established, you know, everyone feels some ownership for it or at least feels like they have the opportunity to input into that. Um, and then I think then having a, you know, ultimately the vision's got to be clear and there's got to be good rationale for uh, where you're going. And, and stating that case in a compelling manner is always important too. And, and being then consistent about it, um, you know, more than just uh, once. You know, it's, um, the, uh, the companies who 
establish a vision, you know, put it on a piece of paper, then it gets thrown in a desk and never seen again, um, that probably isn't going to become the culture. You know, it's got to be uh, reinforced and, and the actions that you have and the strategies that you take have to reinforce it and kind of create a consistent culture over time. Yeah, and speaking of that, because I, I think that is so crucial, and I know that a lot of when I speak to CEOs, a lot of the the questions revolve around culture. How do you establish a winning culture? Like, what is the culture of the LPGA? Did did you help create that? Yeah, I think you know certainly um, our commissioner Mike Wan had played a big role in that, uh, the leading role. But I think our leadership team, you know, also has had a big impact on it. Um, you know, it is leading by example. Um, it is, you know, coming up with some clear values that the company is going to uh, kind of live by and um, and then truly, you know, walking the walk and, and living those. Um, in our case, we've evolved a little bit, um, but one of our guiding principles that we established pretty early on was the, the idea of acting like a founder. Um, you know, in the case of the LPGA, it was founded uh, 66 years ago now by 13 women, um, and they literally did everything. I mean, they were they were the management, they were the promoters, they were the players who played in the tournaments, they were the ones who put up the rope and stakes, they were the ones who did all the PR. Um, I mean, they literally had to do every job, you know, no matter how big or small it was. And so we've tried to, and they persevered, you know, and, and this is back in the, you know, 1950, um, and uh, it's become now the longest running women's sports organization there is. And, um, you know, we kind of use that as a model of, um, you know, there's no, we have to do whatever it takes, you know, no, no job is too small. Um, you know, we, we kind of put a, a circle with a line through not my job, you know, it's, and, and, uh, figure out ways to help people. And so you see, you know, senior managers, you know, helping people carry boxes at a tournament or, you know, do things that, uh, you know, some people may feel are below them, but uh, we've tried to create a culture of, uh, throughout where you do whatever it has to take and you, and you try to be a positive example. Uh, so that's one thing. Um, you know, another, I'd say another value that we espouse is the idea of role reversal. Um, so, and the idea there is to be able to put yourself in the shoes of the customer or the client that we're dealing with and try and understand their goals and objectives and uh, have that be what drives us as much as anything. Um, so similar to what we were talking about earlier with the Procter & Gamble training where you go to an advertising agency or you go out in the field as a sales rep, um, you know, trying to put yourself in the shoes of a Kia or a KPMG and uh, make sure we understand uh, what their what their goals and objectives are. Um, we uh, we try to another value we have is open book, uh, which basically is transparency. Um, you know that uh, we're going to share. Uh, for example, on a monthly basis, we have what we call a budget tracker, and um, we share you know kind of the whole budget uh, with the, with the company um, month in and month out how we stand. Uh, what the outlook looks like, uh, what are some swing items, what are some of the concerns we're faced with, and, um, you know, try to be open and honest and, and transparent about uh, where the business is going and how we can all, how we're all in this together. Um, so I think that's, you know, that's helped create a positive, um, transparent environment. Um, so, you know, there's a lot of, there's a, a number of values like that that I think have really, um, 
helped culture, very teammate oriented uh, culture. Um, we, we use words like teammates instead of employees. We use words like partners instead of sponsors, um, you know, and try to try to create uh, that kind of environment. So John Padani, I love all of that. And and I was going to ask, you know, how do you help a new employee understand the culture of your organization? But you just answered it in the, in the, and I love the, you know, think like a founder mentality. And I think that our listeners will love that too, because, you know, so often businesses, you know, they, some, most of them start small, of course. And so, you know, you have to do everything and to get them to understand that, hey, at, at one point, you know, we're all doing these jobs. We all have to get, do what it takes to get it done. I love that mentality. So thank you for sharing that for sure. What are the most important decisions that you make as a leader of your organization? Do you think it is related to strategy, finance, or people, and why? Strategy, finance, or people? Well, I, I would. Um, I think there's there's importance in all of them, but I'd probably start with people, um, because you know, uh, getting the right people on the bus and and uh, in the right roles, having a strong team is. Um, probably the most important thing because without that, then you're, you're, uh, if you're only doing it on your own, you're not going to get too far. Um, so I'd say that's probably been the most important thing is, um, getting good, smart, talented people and, and getting them going in the right direction. Then the second thing I would say is, is, um, strategy. And by that, I mean, I, for me and what I learned at P and G is strategy is really, you know, a set of choices that you're going to make to determine how you're going to succeed. Um, and just important as the choices you make to what you're going to do are the choices that you make of what you're not going to do um, and not trying to do everything. I see too many companies who um, try to focus on 12 things and don't do anything well. Um, and there's, you know, there's a temptation to, to not say no and to try to do too much um, as opposed to finding as best you can that those four to six things that can really uh, distinguish your company and having more laser focus on doing those things with excellence. So, um, you know, I think getting the right people in the organization and then having a clear strategy with choices of what you're going to do and what you're not going to do are probably the most important to me. And and the finance will come after that. I mean, that's the result of all those things, right? The right people, the right strategy. Yes. So what would you, okay, so what would you change if you didn't have to report any quarterly results? Like, what would you change if you were just free? Well, the good news is we don't have to report quarterly results. So. Well, you still have to <laughs> achieve high level of results, my friends. There's yeah, a lot of people we, watching. <laughs> yeah, we do. Um, you know, I think... Uh, I, it, that's a tough one for us. I mean, it, uh, if I were in a company like in the Procter and Gamble world, you know, it, the easy answer would be um, to focus more long term. You know, are right for the future that aren't going to negatively impact your your immediate quarter. Um, and we, and being a we're a 501c6 um, not for profit organization. Um, but as you say, that doesn't mean, I mean, we're still trying to increase the benefits available to our players, to grow the purses, to, um, to grow the sport overall, to put more young girls on the golf course. You know, we've, we've got all those objectives and, and those can be measured quarterly, um, certainly annually. So, um, you know, I think, I think, uh, it would probably just come down to, to resources and, and, uh, you know, and not feeling like you have, 
have to grow something year to year if you know there's something you can do in a particular year that will be better three years down the road but may not look good in this particular year. Get a little more flexibility to do that without somebody questioning, you know, oh, what's wrong? Uh, why are there only 33 tournaments this year or why, you know, why did revenues go down or why did the, the profit go down for this particular period? Um, that's probably the the thing that comes to mind. And that's a great answer because I do think that, you know, there is that pressure just month after month after month to perform, to grow, to, to completely excel. And to think long-term, I think that is a great answer. What is, from a leadership perspective, what is the optimal number of direct reports uh, that a leader should have in an organization? What do you, what do you think that number would be? I'm so curious. I think it's probably in the six to eight range. Um, you know, no more than 10, uh, at least in my own personal experience, I've found about six to be a, a good number where I felt like I could give enough individual attention um, to each of those people um, and have enough focus on their business. I've, I've had situations where I've had as many as 12 direct reports and it was too many. Um, you know, I just didn't have the time day to day with each of them. I, and certainly when we got to periods of doing personnel reviews and setting goals and all those things that, you know, have to do that with 12 different people was a, was a big burden. So, um, you know, I think six to eight probably is about the right, the right range, four to six, if it's uh, more junior people who need more training and development and at senior levels, you can probably take on a little more um, because the people underneath you are more experienced and don't need as much, you know, day-to-day -day leading and training. And so what, how often do you meet with these people? Um, yeah, it depends on the, the roles. I would say of my direct reports, I'm in contact, you know, one way or another pretty much every day, um, not meeting with necessarily because we, you know, we play, we travel all over the world. We're in different places a lot of time, but uh, whether that's a email or phone call or in-person meeting, um, you know, uh, pretty much yeah, once a day, certainly a few times a week, um, we meet as a bigger team, like my whole department, uh, which is about 40 people once a month and uh, kind of go through the priorities and get an update from the department heads on uh, what's hot with their business, uh, what do other people in the room need to know to make sure we're all kind of rowing in the same direction, um, that kind of thing. So uh, we, and it, not just on my own team, but our uh, we have what we call the executive leadership team at the LPGA, which is all the, the department heads or the C-level executives um, across the various parts of the business. And that's, uh, there's eight of us total, including Commissioner Juan. So of his direct reports, he has um, six or seven reports, you know, in that same range that I was talking about. We meet on a monthly basis you know, and, again, have a lot of day-to-day -day communication. But we, we meet once a month as a leadership team um, to kind of review priorities and um, key things. I appreciate you outlining that in detail just so that our listeners can understand because a lot of them are leading uh, large organizations that are growing and you don't want to be spread too thin. You want to be able to give the attention where it's, where it's needed. So what is the one thing that is critical for your company or your organization and your employee to have a competitive advantage? What is the one thing that's critical for your organization to compete aggressively and, and succeed? Well, I think in our case, it probably comes down to the athlete's um, and having, uh, you know, professional women who, who care 
uh, about the business and, and uh, you know, want to make the LPGA better, aren't out there just to to accomplish their own goals. Um, that's been, you know, something that has separated the LPGA, um, frankly, even from the PGA Tour, um, having worked on both tours, where our players, um, you know, appreciate uh, people who invest in the sport. They um, uh, they have great respect for it, and they're willing to to probably do more, you know, than than athletes and and most other sports that I've seen in terms of. Uh, you know, going to dinner with a client, uh, spending time in their hospitality structure, uh, making it a great pro-am experience and, and truly engaging with the group that they're playing with, um, conducting private clinics, you know, sending thank you notes, um, you know, uh, tweeting and being posting pictures on social media with, with uh, the client. Uh, just, you know, a, a range of ways that they engage day, day in and day out and really uh, appreciate you know what our partners do for us and then the opportunity that they provide for them um, and and one of the things that we do to help them with that um, but again they're the ones kind of bringing it to life is each week at our tournaments uh, we put together what's called a partner profile um, and in that uh, we outline um, who's who's writing the checks that week who who are the people who are making that tournament happen what companies or people, um, you know, what are they trying to accomplish? Uh, what are their objectives for the week? Um, what are the most important things you could be doing as a player? What messaging should you be um, trying to hit on if you're being interviewed by media or if you're posting things on social media? Um, and then ultimately, who, you know, who should you write thank you notes to? And it's not uncommon for our sponsors to receive 40, 50 thank you notes, um, handwritten thank you notes from players following a tournament, which they greatly appreciate. And we oftentimes have sponsors saying, I, I, it just blew me away. I've never received, you know, that kind of appreciation. So um, at the end of the day, you know, having athletes who uh, are good role models, who uh, are great with fans and sponsors has been something that we've been able to to uh, market and, and get people, get companies to invest in. Yeah, and, and I give you and, and Mike Juan credit for that because think about it. I mean, that, that comes from the top, though, that appreciation because it's true. Those tournaments wouldn't be taking place without those people sponsoring those partners. And so uh, I love that you put out that um, the sheet of paper where you're you know talking about what who's writing the check this week, you know, who what are your talking points. That's all very valuable. And even from a any any business, I mean, to to appreciate on a regular basis, show that attitude of gratitude. There's power in that, and we should be thankful because we are uh, getting business from them. We are um, supposed to appreciate what they're doing for us. So that's awesome, John Padani. Love that. Uh, we talked about learning and leading so far. Now, from a legacy perspective, if you don't mind switching gears a little bit, what's the best business or life advice that you would give your kids, or, or you know, eventually your grandkids? Well, you know, probably gets back at a few of the things that we've talked about. I think probably first and foremost is just have an attitude of trying to get the most out of the talents and abilities that you've been blessed with, um, you know, to to maximize what God's put you on this earth to do. Um, related to that, I would say, uh, not not necessarily related, but an, but another thing is just surround yourself with good people. You know, you're only as good as a company that you keep, whether that's the spouse that you choose and how you raise your kids and, you know, the the people that you work with, uh, the people that you hire, uh, especially, um, you know, try to put yourself in, in an environment with 
with positive people who want to make a difference. And um, that that helps fuel your own desire to to be positive and want to make a difference and and not uh, get pulled down, you know, by people who are negative or critical or 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 getting in trouble or whatever the case may be. How do you how do you handle negative people in your life? Do you, I, I mean we all get them. How do you handle that situation? Yeah, I think um, you know uh, it depends on what the situation is. If it's um, you know in the business environment, um, if they're colleagues, you try to work around it, try to help you know try to help them see the positive side of things. If they work for you, then that's certainly something that you can coach and train them on, and ultimately indicate that if you know certainly if it's affecting their success or the the attitude and and, and culture around them, that that's not going to be a behavior that's tolerated. They're going to you know, they're not going to have a job if that's the case. And, and, uh, you know, with your own family, it's, um, you know, it's, it's, um, trying to show the value of being optimistic and positive and, and, um, and the, frankly, the, the, the uselessness of being negative <laughs> and, and letting your mind wander. I mean, everybody's mind wanders obviously, and, and everybody has negative thoughts, but trying not to let those fuel you and, um, you know, trying to help, you know, your kids understand that there's just, uh, there's a better way, you know, and, uh, uh, why, why feel miserable when you don't have to <laughs> sure there are challenges you're going to have to face and, and disappointments in life, but, um, there's always tomorrow, you know, and there's nothing stopping you from making today better and making tomorrow better and creating the kind of life that you want to have. I, I do think, and it's an old adage, life is 20% what happens to you and 80% how you respond to it. And we make that choice each and every day. And, and talking about that positive attitude, John Padani, what would make you happier today in your life? I, you know, I, I've, I'm uh, very blessed. I, I try not to focus on what I don't have and, and focus on what I have, similar to what we were just talking about. I, I do, um, I try to, you know, be grateful every day that I've got a, a great wife, great kids. I work in an industry that I love. I live in a in a great part of the world. Um, I've you know I'm able to make contributions and and make a difference, you know. So really, the only thing out there is um, you know kind of what we talked about earlier that I I would like to have a point in my career here where I'm lead you know I am the the leader. I'm leading a company. Um, you know, and, and putting even more of my own mark on something. Um, you know, I'm able to do that as as a very senior executive, but it's still, you know, most organizations, obviously, the, the, the CEO or the commissioner or the top person at that company has the biggest influence. So, um, you know, ultimately, I, that's probably, from a career standpoint, um, you know, what, what could make me happier. From a personal standpoint, things are... Things are pretty darn good, fortunately. Yeah, that's isn't that a nice place to be? It, it's it's interesting because your desire to have that position would create even a, more, a bigger demand on your time. And so, how do you maintain balance between work and, and your personal life, and and be present when you need to be? Well, I think it, it, it's you know just all about priorities. Um, I, I probably, frankly, had I made some different decisions, probably would have been in a position to 
to have a CEO kind of role now if I had made some different kinds of sacrifices. Um, but I'm okay with that. I, I feel like the, there's no more important time in your, in your kids' lives than probably the first 12 years of their life. Um, and uh, there's nothing during that time period that can replace time with them. Um, and that's, that's critical. You can say all the right things you can, you know, but, but if you're just not there with them, uh, watching their activities, helping them in life, being there for dinner, whatever the case may be, um, you know, so you just can't replace that. And, uh, once they get to teenage years or they're finding their own independence and you're around them less, um, anyway, but it, uh, those first, you know, 12 years. So I, I really, you know, for those, that period of time, tried to be as involved as I could be um, while still having a successful career. I coached. I, um, you know, fortunately, at that point in my career, I didn't travel as much as I do now. Um, and now that they're, you know, two are in college and one's a 17, um, you know, they're, I'm able to do uh, more. There's not as much time that you can have with them anyway. Um, so I think, you know, my from a personal standpoint, I'm transitioning into a stage of my life where I where I'll have a little more flexibility, you know, um, overall. So, you know, Eric, our 12 year old, and he's got such, yep. he's got such a great personality now that we've got two in college. He's, he's home alone. Well, if I ever say no to him, he says, Alexa, play cats in the cradle, <laughs> which I absolutely love. And, you know, you know, that song and you know what it means. And, I do. and so I just yeah. think that's great, but he milks it for all it's worth. And I appreciate that more than, you know, um, you, you know, <laughs> how, did, how did he first hear? Well, yeah, you know, who knows? Who knows? I think you know through his b- older brother or something. But I just think that's such a great, a uh, great way to get my attention immediately. By the way, uh, you, you know, you you have an incredible wife, Julie, and, and three great daughters. Uh, matter of fact, I think you have, had a girl dog, maybe a girl fish. I mean, <laughs> how how did you and Julie raise three level-headed kids with all the demands on your time and, and all your success? And I know you kind of mentioned on it the time thing, but you know, I mean, I, there's a lot of love there too that went into that. Yeah, I think, um, you know, I, I think, uh, two things. One is leading by example, you know, um, kind of showing them the right way to treat people, um, showing them how to, to, to the right values, um, and, and, uh, leading those, not just telling them, but letting them see how you interact with people and how, what choices you make in your life. And, that kind of thing. And and the second thing is making, just making them feel loved um, and that you care about them and their, their own welfare, welfare. And, and I think, you know, the husband and wife um, treating each other with respect. So they see, you know, how you interact with each other and uh, have a model for how to, you know, how to interact with people and deal with people and, and that kind of thing. Everyone's watching, aren't they? They're all listening and watching. See how we yep, act. They certainly pick up a lot more yeah, than you ever believe. So I believe that we all ought to go through life with one hand extended up for help from those who are a little further along than we are in life, and also one hand extended down to help others who are coming along in life behind us. I mean, every opportunity I've ever had is because somebody helped me. Can you name a person who has had a significant impact on you as a leader, maybe a mentor, someone who's offered that hand uh, down to you? Yeah, I think, you know, a couple of people come to mind. I'd say going back to earlier in my life, um, certainly uh, my grandfather um, had a big influence on me. Um, my parents went through two divorces 
Um, they divorced, remarried, and divorced again. So uh, it was a little rocky, you know, from that standpoint. But uh, my grandfather was someone I always had a close relationship with and, um, you know, somebody I could go to, you know, during uh, difficult times, you know, between my parents. Um, and then later in life, I'd say one kind of one key career change that helped me and, and a friend helped make this happen uh, was a guy by the name of Todd Putman at uh, P&G, where I started my career at P&G in the finance division, uh, which was part of the business teams. But I pretty quickly learned that Procter & Gamble was a very marketing driven company and the senior leaders from the company um, and the key decisions for brands were made um, in the brand management group in the marketing area. So I uh, wanted to transfer in the marketing. I tried early in my career, about six to eight months into it, and it didn't work out. They felt like I hadn't been there long enough to really know what I wanted and, and where the company thought that I was best. And about a year later, I wanted to transfer again. And it was probably at that point, either transfer or leave, um, because you've now said to the company twice, I want to pursue this other opportunity. And if it didn't work out that time, I don't think they would feel like you wanted to be there. So, um, but he, he helped make that happen. And I did end up transferring into the brand and marketing side of the business. And that helped me to ultimately have a successful six more years at P&G, and that led to the opportunity to get in the golf industry. So, um, you know, kind of in an early point in my career, there was somebody there to to help me uh, make that job happen, and that that ended up being a stepping stone to a lot of the things that I've accomplished. It's amazing how um, you know just people have such a major impact on you. Certain people in your life, whether it's a teacher or a coach or family, you know, grandfather. We talk about kitchen cabinet. President Reagan, you know, I was fortunate to work for President Reagan in his post-presidential office, and he had a kitchen cabinet his entire career. And he really surrounded himself with people that were gave him three things, brutal honesty, they were success-oriented, they had a shared vision. John Padani, who's, who's in your kitchen cabinet, like right now, you know, just name one or two names, just and kind of what, what do they bring to the table? Well, I'd certainly say my wife, um, you know, we talk about everything. She's always been there for me and, um, you know, understands me. So I think uh, she's certainly been one. Um, you know, Mike Wan at the at the LPGA, who is currently my boss, but, you know, we knew each other for uh, 23 years prior to that um, and had been good friends and peers uh, for a long time. And, um, you know, not just because of the show, but uh, obviously you and I have had a lot of conversations <laughs> about our respective careers and uh, what's working, what's not. And um, so I've always, uh, you know, I've always appreciated that as well. No, I, pre- I appreciate that. And, and, and it goes the same way. I, I consider you definitely a member of my kitchen cabinet and value your opinion and insight and, and really, you know, candid um, feedback. So I think a lot of it is just being honest with each other and just kind of saying, hey, where do we want to be? So certainly appreciate that. Sounds like a good list. And I'll take my name out of it. Uh, it so I, I, in that same vein, and, and, I, and I, in my speeches at the end, I asked the audience to answer this question. How will your children describe you to their children? What will your legacy be? You know, what was grandpa like? You know, and I don't know, he's never around, or he loved me more than anything. John Padani, in your wildest fantasy, how would you want to be described? Well, you know, I um, fortunately for, you know, birthdays and Father's Days, I've, I've gotten a lot of very nice cards from my kids over the years, which I 
treasure and have kept and um, you know the kinds of things that I w- I've seen from them. I certainly would hope you know that they would continue to feel and, and describe to their kids are um, first of all that they, you know we just love me to death and uh, cared for me. You know was there for me. Um, you know taught me. Uh, was concerned for my welfare. Helped me be successful. Um, and uh, you know a man of faith and integrity. Um, that you can rely on and, and trust. I think if I accomplished some of those, you know, I would be uh, pretty pleased. I don't think you could ask for much more than that. You know, John, I want to I want to thank you for your time today. Thanks for a window into what it takes to lead a successful large organization. I'm confident that my listeners will walk away from this podcast with you better equipped to tackle the challenges that leaders face every day as they lead. You know, try to lead their families and their businesses with greater purpose, direction and optimism. Thank you so much, John. Thank you, Dan. I enjoyed it. I hope you enjoyed the show. Please remember to subscribe to the podcast. Don't just listen, subscribe. This will help others discover the show. And please, as a personal favor to me, write a review. When you subscribe to Garage to Goliath podcast and write a review, it boosts our ratings. Ratings in turn help others find this show. Please also share this podcast with friends and family so together we can expand leadership excellence.